So yes, Genesis chapter 1, probably one of the easiest but also one of the most annoying books to try and find when you open your Bible. All right. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God's, God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give a light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, 
and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with it, seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Thanks, Josiah. So as I mentioned before in this series, we are looking at the creation account, uh, particularly in the first two chapters of Genesis. And if you're not aware, Genesis 1 and 2 are kind of considered to be like two different but complementary angles on God's work of creation. And so we're doing three weeks in chapter 1 looking at the God of creation, uh, the days of creation and the rulers of creation, which is the role of us human beings. And then we're doing three weeks in chapter 2, looking particularly at work and rest, uh, at obedience and worship, and at relationships and family. Uh, But you could say that there's actually a case for three different angles in Genesis 1 and 2. And that the first one is actually the ten words that we considered last week. Genesis 1 verse 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That one sentence really contains it all. That's how it happened. And then, of course, from verse 2, we we sort of move into this detailed how of, of God making the heavens and the earth. And it starts with, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so here, what we have is, is like a blank page. The formless, empty world, ready for God's forming and filling. But before we get to that, we want to consider this morning some bigger questions regarding Scripture and science. Uh, Even if you're new to faith or the Bible, you're probably aware of the discrepancies between creation and evolution. But you may not be aware of how that sparks a number of debates in creation-believing Christians as well. And so the main disagreement or question mark has always been about whether God made the world in six literal days or in six symbolic days seeing as the earth does indeed appear to be much older than five or six thousand years. 
And from that has come endless other questions and debates about theistic evolution or whether there was death and decay before the fall or the Big Bang and how that works and and all these other things. And so the first two points this morning are to help us deal with some essential principles before we come back to those actual days of creation in Genesis 1. And after all, as a reminder, it is the simplicity, it is the beauty, and it is the meaning of creation that we are most concerned with. So what does the Bible mean by this? That's a question we often have to consider, isn't it? What does it actually mean by that? When it says morning and evening, how should we interpret that? Is it actual day and night or is it ages that pass by? And that's just one of many questions we come to when we read Scripture. And I've made this my first point this morning because it's so incredibly important that we always start with what the Bible says. Not with what we think, not with what scientists say, but what the Bible says. Just like we started last week with God himself and his creating word, so we start with his word in the matter of discerning creation. As we considered, the word is God's revelation of himself. It's his truth. It's breathed by his mouth. It's penned by his prophets and apostles. And it's inspired by his spirit. And this particular section, by the way, uh, includes the first five books of the Bible. And it is what we call the Pentateuch. And it was written by Moses as he was carried along by the spirit. But the important principle here is that scripture is authoritative and infallible. It's faultless. And we are not here to question the validity of the Bible any more than we're here to question God himself. If you're looking to do that, you might need to go to a different place. God's word is truth. However, while his word is infallible, our interpretation is fallible. It's faulty. And that's an important admission of humility for us imperfect human beings. We can sometimes get it wrong. You can get it wrong. I can get it wrong. We can all get it wrong at times. We read with tainted eyes and corrupted minds. And our views and interpretations and understanding of of not just this, but everything in life is selfishly skewed. It's selfishly skewed because of our sin. And you can see the, uh, the picture in the background there is a picture of the Crusades, which is just one example from history where Christians have got it very wrong. Yes, in Jesus, we are being redeemed for those here who believe in him. And that includes our interpretation. It includes our understanding, but it will never be perfect this side of heaven. And so while we can put absolute faith in God's word, we cannot put faith in our own perceptions and preconceptions. And we should never be arrogant enough to think that we've got it all down pat and everyone else has got it wrong. We should always be willing to learn and to discern and to relearn if necessary. Thankfully, By his grace, God gives us the Spirit 
same spirit who wrote the word helps us to read it. And God gives us the church where there are other Christians and so we can be sharpened by each other. And God gives us his word in completion to teach us. That is, we never deal with passages in isolation. We never pull them out and say, oh, this, let's just talk about this and forget the rest of the Bible. It is always part of a bigger whole right from Genesis, which by the way means beginning, all the way through to Revelation. The word must stay together. And so when we read the Bible as a whole, the first thing that we discover is that it includes different genres. Different genres and and types of literature and writing. And that's crucial to any interpretation and application that we do. For example, we cannot read narrative or, or the storytelling of the Old Testament as if it's law. Otherwise, we might all be out there trying to slay Philistines with jawbones, mightn't we? And we cannot read law as if it's just poetry, songs. Otherwise, we might dismiss the need to obey it. And we cannot read Old Testament prophecy as if it's New Testament epistle because we might just then miss Jesus' fulfillment of it all. And we cannot read Genesis chapter 1 as purely history. That doesn't mean it's not historical, but that it was not written as a lab report for 21st century Christians who were trying to discern science. It was written for the everyday ancient Israelite and for their faith. Some say that uh, Genesis chapter 1 is more like poetry than history. Uh, But it actually lacks some of the key features of poetry, um, mainly parallelism, which you find throughout Hebrew poetry. And so ultimately what we we see is that it's really a, a unique structure and genre to describe a thoroughly unique event in history. And also we notice that it it makes use of what we'll call phenomenological language. Uh, Don't worry about what that means. I don't even really know what it means. Except that it's language about how things appear and how we observe them rather than technical scientific language. Uh, So for example, and this is from the Psalms, when the Bible says the earth is firmly established and it cannot be moved, that's not saying that it can't orbit the sun. Or it can't spin on its axis. It's not what is, is, is being attempted there. It's language of observation and appearance within the context of those who are considering it. Even today we use language like that. When we say that the sun rises and the sun sets, none of us actually believe that happens. I.e. the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, does it? The earth revolves around the sun and it spins and so sunrise and sunset. And that's how we have to come to this as well. And it goes like that in Genesis 1, such as uh, day 2, when there's this vault between two different waters. And we all go, what's that talking about? There's no water up there, is there? But of course, for, for, for the ancient Hebrews, thinking about, well, this is where the rain comes from. That's, that's the, the, the vault of water. Uh, sorry, the water's up there and the vault in between, which is the sky, and the rain comes down. That's what made sense to them. And so it brings us then to this 
classic debate between science and creation. And I want to state very clearly from the start that there is no disagreement between science and creation. Because science is simply a study, like theology. And it's not an opposing worldview in any way. The real opposition to creation and to the worldview that we call theism, which believes that there is a God who made the world and is involved with the world, the real opposition is naturalism, uh, which is a worldview which basically says everything is just matter and that's all that there is. Even evolution is not a direct opposite because it's a scientific theory. But naturalism is. Naturalism is the the worldview that states there's no God, there's no creator who made it, there's just stuff and it just happened to be here. It's all just chance. And so the most important point in any discussion about the origin of the universe, which we should never lose sight of, is whether there's a God who creates it. Whether there's intelligence behind this material, physical world. Whether there's purpose and meaning to us and to the life that's around us. That is far more important than the means and the process and the details we often consider. And if we see that clear difference between naturalism and science, we can recognize that the study of science, just like the study of theology or uh, hermeneutics, which is interpreting the Bible, it can have faulty interpretation. It can be wrong. And isn't the past full of scientific theories that have been disproven and superseded? So many of them. Couldn't count them all. And that's because that's what they are. They're theories. The Big Bang is a theory. Evolution is a theory. Even black holes are a theory. Some might say that anything you cannot prove is simply a theory. And to an extent, that's true, isn't it? But only if human understanding is your point of reference. And I'm not here to get into a big philosophical uh, lecture about it, but if, on the other hand, your point of reference is God, if your standard of measurement, if the source of truth is God and His Word, then we can trust that what he says is true. So what does all this say about the days of creation and the age of the earth? Well, this is where I make lots of friends by saying, we just don't know. We don't know. We can't know for sure. Our knowledge is limited. We can know that God created the heavens and the earth. But we can't know how long it took him. We can know that God created through a structured, orderly process, but we can't know all the details. And I would only say two more things, one on each side of of that debate, because they're good to consider. Uh, Firstly, both Psalm 90 and uh, 2 Peter highlight how for God a thousand years is like a day which means all of recorded history, as we know it, is 
at most a week to him. How quick does a week go by? To God. And often we use this as comfort, but it's also saying something about his sovereignty, his might, his power. He is outside of time. We thought about this last week. He is the Lord of time. He created time. And so within the days of creation, he sets the sun and the moon into space and the stars as well, those bodies which determine our literal days. They are created like time is created. And so we can never say that God definitely used the days as we know them because that would be restricting him to our understanding and our observation. The other thing I wanted to say is that many people question why would God make a world that seems so old scientifically if he made it so quickly? Uh, Why would he make a mature earth? And it's worth saying that he made a mature man and woman, didn't he? He didn't take some embryos and plant them in the ground so that they sprouted like plants into babies and then preschool or, you know, all the rest of it. He made a developed man from the dust of the earth and he made a developed woman from the man. So why not a developed earth or universe? God can do anything. That's the point. And we cannot limit him with either stance on things. He could have created everything in a week to display his absolute power and ability. God can do it. Or he could have spanned millions of years Just as the sky spans an endless universe, seemingly endless. Why? To display his glory and his eternity. And even his love and favor for this tiny little insignificant planet. And this tiny little dot on the timeline that we might be. It isn't essential that we know the details, only that we know the creator. And that's where we turn now as we consider just the simplicity and the beauty of these six days, which are all about forming and filling and realms and rulers. Uh, Remember verse 2, that the earth was formless and empty. And so God sets about to form the formless and to fill the emptiness. Uh, And so in days 1 to 3, God forms predominantly And in days four to six, he fills. Uh, Last week, we talked about how we do similar things as people in his image. Uh, A bit like a potter with clay on the wheel. You know, you whack it down and it's just this formless hunk of clay. But then you get it going and you're set to molding and shaping it. And you might even say you could put some grapes in it afterwards and it's filled. Whenever I do Duplo uh, with Evie, which is a lot, uh, I'm all about the forming. I love forming awesome houses and other things, all the structures. Uh, But she's all about the filling. She just loves to fill it up with people and animals and all these other random misplaced things that don't belong uh, contextually, but, you know, I'll get over it. Uh, But both of those things, both of those uh, activities, they come from God who forms and who fills, forms the earth and fills it with life. But it goes even deeper than that. If we inspect more closely, we see how day one relates to day four. You can sort of see it in the pictures. Day two to day five and day three to day six. That as God forms different realms, he then also fills 
those realms with rulers. So on day one, God forms the realms of light and darkness, or day and night. And then on day four, he fills those realms with the sun, moon, and stars. And in verse 16, it actually says that those uh, things are set there to govern the day and the night. They are governors. They are rulers. And it's no wonder that so many of the primal religions uh, would actually worship these astrological bodies, the sun and the moon. You know, farmers would worship mainly the sun and hunters would go and worship the moon because of what it yielded. But they were and are governors, albeit insentient ones. Then on day two, God forms the realms of sea and sky. And on day five, he fills them with rulers, with the birds and the fish. And maybe that's a a bit of an argument for the pro-shark people here. Uh, You know, it's their kingdom. If you invade it, it's, you know, suffer your own consequences. Although that might also mean we shouldn't fly planes in the sky, so I don't know if that argument works. But then on God, uh, sorry, on day three, God forms the realm of land. And on day six, he fills that realm with rulers, the livestock, the wild animals, and ultimately human beings. And it's on day six that we see there's this break to the pattern. Um, And God shows the uniqueness of creating humans. We're going to be diving into that really for the rest of the series. But just a couple of things to highlight. First, we see that humans are given special dignity and identity because they're made in God's image. Uh, They're announced differently. So with all the other ones, God said, let there be this. Let the waters team, let there be light, all that sort of thing. But here he says, let us make man in our image. Not only does like he announce it as if he's telling the heavenly courts, but he uses the plural as if perhaps he's talking about himself, the triune God. Let us make man in our image. Then the evaluation upgrades from good to very good. Uh, and that's not just because humans are the best. You know, let's not get a big head about that. Uh, it's because also humans are the final act of creation. In creating human beings, God tops off his complete creation in all its vast array. And it's very good. Also, the sixth day is the only day that has the definite article in front of it. The sixth day. Day. The other ones don't actually have that. And again, it highlights its climactic nature. And finally, human beings are the only creatures whose filling and ruling is not limited to the corresponding realm. Uh, they are told to fill the whole earth and to rule over all the other creatures. The, you know, the fish and the birds and the animals, the plants... And so space and sky and sea and sand, all of these areas of the world are ours to rule and to steward. And so I guess that includes the sharks too, uh, albeit responsibly. We'll come back to the, the privilege and the responsibility of this task in future weeks. But here it is, in its kind of beautiful completeness. We're also going to come back to the seventh day and how God rested on that day. 
uh, and let's not miss it, even right now. It's a challenging one, but we want to dwell on this later in the series because God, because God rested on that seventh day and made it holy. Right at the beginning, before there were any laws, God made the Sabbath holy. So this is the order and the beauty of God's creating work. He forms and he fills. Realms and rulers. Astrological bodies, birds, fish, animals, human beings, all, all of them as kings in, in different ways and in different kingdoms. And all of them under the ultimate rule of the one king. And see, we don't want to miss what this says about the kingdom of heaven, which we talked about last week. Remember how the earth is designed on the model of heaven, the blueprint of heaven? Well, these smaller kingdoms are modeled on that kingdom. And their kings are modeled on the one true king, mostly, of course, human beings. And see, while we continue the work of forming and filling and ruling down here on earth, Jesus is forming, filling and ruling in heaven. He says to his disciples in John chapter 14 that he goes to make a home for them, to create a home for them, to form a resting place for their eternity. And what does he do with that home? He fills it. He fills the kingdom with saved souls, daily adding to that number. Way faster than a toddler can add people and animals to a Duplo house. Maybe even faster than people filling this physical world. Jesus is filling the kingdom with the redeemed. And it's done by his redemptive work on the cross. Where, as we considered, he transfers people from the dominion of darkness, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son. And where he transforms them into his likeness. Note that word again, forming, transforming them. And from there, Jesus rules not just heaven, but earth as well. He is the Lord of the whole universe. He is the ruler of rulers, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We often quote that, don't we? And we especially think of it in regards to human authorities. Jesus is the Lord of those people. But it's this as well, isn't it? He's the king over the sun and the moon and the stars. He's the king over the fish and the birds and the animals. And he is the king over human beings. And so that king who rules every realm and who rules the kingdom itself seeks to rule in each of our lives. Just as he continues forming us or transforming us, and just as he continues filling our lives with love and with faith and with hope, so he demands the rule and the kingship of our entire lives. So what is our response? We can either reject him as ruler of both our lives and of the world around us, or we can respond in faith, in trust, in humility, 
in worship. Because the creation account is not just meant for intellectual debate. It's not just meant for academic research or study. It's meant for faith. It's meant for humility. It's meant for worship, for both the simplest and the smartest of people. It shows us a simplicity that God made everything. It shows us a beauty that through an orderly, wonderful process, He creates. And it shows us mostly a meaning that we can know our place in the created order of things. And so we admire and we trust in God's design, especially as we consider what that means in future weeks. We're humbled by the magnitude of our Creator and His creation, of what it spans, of what He spans. And we worship the one who made it all and who rules it all forever. This is the bottom line. Shall we pray? Father God, we thank you for this truly wonderful account of how you made the heavens and the earth. Right back at the beginning of how you spoke and the earth was formed. How you spoke and it was filled with good things. Lord, and we we thank you that you show us yourself in that wonderful work. That we can see reflections of you all around us. And even in the days of the week itself. Father, we thank you for the simplicity of it. That we don't have to worry about all the details, but that we can know that you made everything. We thank you for the beauty of it, Lord, and how it reveals you in in that beauty, in that order. And we thank you for the meaning, that we can know our purpose and what life is about. And so, Lord, we pray that you help us to respond in faith, in trusting you, that you will grow our faith. Help us to respond in humility that we might close our mouths and be silent at times as we see the power and the glory with which you create the world. And help us to respond in worship even now, that as we sing, we know we sing to a creator, God, who made everything for a purpose, including us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.